0: the core of the gospel is the image of God and the protection, the coming, the coming of the king, of the kingdom of God to reclaim the health of the image of God on earth. The the health of any kingdom is symbolized in the health of the images of the king or monarch. So when they said, let us make humankind in our image, And let them multiply and fill the earth. What is that doing? It is saying to the earth, God is the king of the earth. This is God's kingdom. The whole realm is God's kingdom. But when we govern in ways that dominate the image of God, to prohibit and limit capacity to exercise agency in the world, that cover over the call of God in certain people groups or in most people groups actually to be self-determining, and to decide for themselves where they will live and how much their labor is worth. When we do that, we limit and crush the capacity of the image of God to flourish, to exercise agency. So what if when we govern in ways that crush the image of God, we are actually declaring war on God?
1: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle, and of course, my co-host, Trifina peruma This is episode 133, and this episode is a doozy. Our guest today is Lisa Sharon Harper, and we have been longing to talk with her for a very long time. We finally got the opportunity to do so, unpacking her book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It All i would commend this interview and this book of lisa's to absolutely everybody there is hard stuff in here i would give a content warning lisa does not gloss over the evils uh, of racism but she offers an incredible hope-filled vision for how god can put the world to rights again we talk about ancestry, about radical reconnection, about shalom, about h- forgiveness as a rehumanizing process where your agency and dignity is reclaimed. We talk about the myth and lies of European supremacy and of the greatness of pre-colonial African nations. There's a ton in here, and honestly, make room in your heart and in your calendar <laughs> And get into this and go and buy Lisa Sharon Harper's book, Fortune. It is hard going. It is not easy to read, but it is important and it is powerful. So, with all of that said, please welcome Lisa Sharon Harper to the podcast. Lisa, like I, I just said, I don't know if a book has ever impacted quite this intense. I just feel the need to honor you and your story and your ancestors. I read these words and these stories and I, and I wept and my body shook and I felt dirty for myself mm-hmm. and for my ancestors. And, and I hope that doesn't sound like I'm centering my issues here, but I just, I, I want to give honor to you and to every one of your ancestors for their fight, for their survival, and for all that you have woven Mm -hmm. out of their legacy and in your life and what you've freely chosen to give to the world. Uh, I don't feel that I deserve it, and I am profoundly honored.
0: Well, I do appreciate that. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm honored um, that you took the time to read fortune and that you also allowed it to get in, you know, enough to actually move you. That's the goal. The goal is for it to actually change us, uh, for mm-hmm. the story to change us and, and really for a re-centered story. So I think that's probably what you're responding to more than anything is that we're so used to hearing stories that where the victor is centered, where the the colonizer the settlers are centered. And so we care about their love lives and we care about their they're hacking it out and making it work. And but well, we, we haven't really heard the stories that center mm-hmm. those who are being hacked. Yes. And yeah. that's what fortune did and does.
2: It very much does. And can I just say thank you? Because even when you talked about the idea of offering your body up as a loving sacrifice to be the bridge. Between the then and the now, and to unpack the story, you you so seamlessly did that, and I can't even imagine the toll that that took on your own body. So thank you to you for just taking the time to document that. So appreciate it. So can I can I ask you because I so appreciated how you took time to walk us back many generations. So why is it so important for you right now and for our listeners? Like why is it so important that we understand where we are situated as individuals, and why was it important for you to situate yourself?
0: Well, see, as an African-American, I did not start this book um, to write a book. I started this as family research. As an African-American, it's hard to trace our history back beyond our grandparents, maybe great-grandparents. And if we're really lucky, we can go back into the Reconstruction era just after the Civil War. But when you hit that era that is the antebellum South, the sl- the South before the war, the South where slavocracy ruled. Yeah. Um, part of that slavocracy was um, the erasure of our lives by not documenting our births and our deaths, mm-hmm. um, by not naming us, but the dehumanization of sales that um, only named male, mulatto, 16. Right or or that kind of thing or slave schedule as opposed to a census record, mm-hmm. so because of the lack of records, um, which I found out in the course of my of my research was intentional an intentional practice or lack of practice um, decided on by legislative law um, back in the colonial era,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, in the time of of the British colonies back in the 1600s and early 1700s they made the ruling they would not trace the births and deaths of even free people of african descent in the united in in their colonies and their reason was very simple it's not worth it like they literally just said not worth the trouble and so that decision leaves me or left me in 1991 not able to trace my family like do you see the impact yeah of of i mean think about an adopted child Um, So if a friend who was adopted, anybody got any adopted friends or are you adopted? You know, then you have either watched your friend struggle or you yourself have struggled to understand who you are. Um, You can understand as an adoptee into a family who this family is that you've been grafted into, but it's very different than knowing who, what is the blood that you come from? What blood courses through your veins and what did they experience in life? And how did you come to be? That's the experience of African-Americans at large, um, unless they were, um, they, they descend from people who, at, for whatever reason, usually because they were here from the very beginning and those those original 19 and odd Angolan people, they were indentured and not enslaved. And so that, so, you know, after seven years or or even 30 years, they were set free, but then they were free and free indeed after that, right? So- That's a rare set. And that's the only reason why we can trace all the way back to fortune is that she was among those. Um, She was here born into um, into this world on colonial soil, the soil of of the eastern shore of Maryland um, in 1687. And because she was born at that time in her circumstance, she was actually well documented. And the circumstance that really made for her documentation was the fact that her mother was white and her father was black. And because of that mixed race union, um, they then fell right squarely within the the crosshairs of the very first race laws in Maryland. Um, But it's because of that circumstance that I have the privilege of being able to trace back that far. When I first started writing Fortune, or sorry, doing the research 30 years ago, um, I had no intention of writing a book. I only wanted to research who am I. But it was upon discovering Fortune and realizing that, wow, my family history intersects with the history of race in mm-hmm. America as in the establishment of the legal construct, the political construct that we now call race in America wow, I realized this is more than just my story. This is America's story. And um, and then as I went through each generation, I realized, well, you know, you're here. You really literally are here during major events that are happening. And most of the major events that make America, America, my family was a part of it and here. And so, I, you know, I realized this is not just my family. It's family story. It's it's the story of America and it needs to be written. So I wrote it.
1: for For people who... Have no grid of what it means to not know where they come from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you lose? What do you not have that that others have?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, if you are un—and this is this was the case for me—in um, 1991, when I first called my mom and I said, "Mom, I need to know who are we?" You know, my only reference for be what it meant to be African American was black and white sepia tone pictures of the civil rights movement, which I wasn't that um, up on. I didn't know that much about it. I knew it happened. I had watched a couple of movies, but I didn't really, I wasn't deeply invested in knowing that history, even though my mom was a part of it. And, didn't, and I didn't even know that. Um, I I knew, uh, I knew um, Alex Haley's family really well. <laughs> so I knew Roots, right? He wrote Roots, and i my mom forced us to watch roots every single time it came on every time so you know aunt kizzy um she became my aunt kizzy right mm-hmm. chicken george became my uncle and um, uncle george and and so on and Kinte was my ancestor that's like we 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 grafted ourselves into the story by proxy and 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 that was enough for a time but i'll tell you since i have come to understand who I am. Now I understand there's a rootedness that happens when you are rooted in the actual stories and know how you got here. When you have, you are reconnected to your line, to your lineage, to the lands that Mm -hmm. your ancestors walked upon and the things that happened to them that moved them Um, to the place where you came into the world. Um, uh, You are not moved by the winds, um, nor do I feel like I have to please anybody to be accepted. I just simply know who I am. And it's literally like, take it or leave it. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. And and guess what? I have all my ancestors to back me up (laughs) now. Like I got my posse and my posse, you know, they came before me and they stand with me. Like they still, like, especially now that I've really um, learned so much about their lives and the decisions that they made, there's a sense of, um, I think in a very similar way, interestingly enough, a very similar way that um, I kind of understand that, that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration moment where Jesus stands with his ancestors. Yeah. He literally stands with his in- and they back him up. And guess what he's about to do? He's about to go to the cross.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like that's just before he turns his face to Israel and moves toward the cross. Mm-hmm. That's when he has the Mount of Transfiguration and he stands with it. And I think he's getting power from them. He's like remembering who he is and, and that he's not alone, that they are with him. And so, I, I mean, that's that's now how I move through the world. I show up in any room. I show up with fortune. I show up with Henry, I show up with with Lizzie and Leah um, and Austin and all of their foibles mm. and all of their brokenness and all of their strengths and all of their strategies for resilience that I've learned from and make me more resilient. That's the benefit of not of being connected. And I think that ultimately what I've really come to understand, um, especially considering the last book that I wrote before fortune, the very good gospel is that what shalom is, is radical connection. Yes. Shalom is, and shalom is the call. Shalom is what the kingdom of the kingdom of God looks like, what it requires of its citizen. That in the very beginning, at the end of the sixth day, God looks around and says, this is very good. Well, what that very good meant was, radically good and the goodness existed between things not inside the thing mm. so it was the relationships between all things that was radically good so if that's if that's what god desires is radical reconnection then that includes our connection to our past our connection to our people our connection to our actual story as opposed to the disconnection that was created through colonization, enslavement, and also um, the
2: exploitation of land.
1: Mm. Thank you. That is so powerful.
2: Thank you. So I loved how you talked about connection being such a central part of all of this. And even in your writing, you had talked about connection in in correlation with forgiveness. Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? Because that was earth-shattering to me. The way you had brought that around, um, and treated forgiveness as something that I had agency over, something that gave me agency and autonomy.
0: Yeah, forgiveness is something only humans can do.
2: Mm. Forgiveness
0: requires agency. You can't be you can't be um, pushed to forgive because forgiveness lives in the heart. It's a decision of the heart um, and the mind, and so it's not something that can be compelled. Um, you can say you forgive and yet not forgive with your heart, right? Um, and so it is it is a rehumanizing act. Mm. But I also think it needs to be understood in the context of repair, that mm. it is, in fact, the last step on the road to repair. The first step is truth seeking yeah. and truth listening and then telling the truth that you have heard. Um, that there can be no repair without truth. Um, In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think for so many people who are, quote, subjects of the queen and now the king, um, that's why there's just so, like, literally, like, gnashing of teeth and just rage rising up around the world um, from especially brown people, but not only brown people. I'm hearing some Scots and some northern Irish um, people who are absolutely incensed that um, that monarchy, which exists on the foundational lie that some people have been created to rule and others have been created to be subjected to their rule, hence the word subjects, that that lie is now being lionized in the passing of the scepter, mm-hmm. and as that scepter passes. Um, we, in order for it, in order for the world to look on and actually say, okay, you know, we're going to keep going with this. The world has to keep going with the lie. Mm-hmm. You see, that's part of the truth we have to tell. That's part of the reason why people are so enraged and so it's so painful. Is that um, this process of succession has actually been a process of covering over the truth, wallpapering over the truth. And when you do that, what you're actually doing is muffling the cries of the image of God. Yes. You are silencing the image of God, the voice of God, actually, in subjected people. And so, you know, so truth-telling is the first part. And the second thing that must happen then is to ask, okay, now, given what we now know that happened because we've listened to the truth, is we have to ask the question, okay? How do we repair it? How do we repair the relationship between us that broke when, let's say, I am now in the in the place of of the settler colonizer mm-hmm. um, when I took the place of God and ordained that I should live over you and determine where you should live um, or that you should not live when I commit genocide against your people, right? So this is, that's that's where you get imbalance in relationship and that's how um, things get off tilter. And that's what reparation is for. It's for bringing that relationship back into proper balance, um, bringing the bringing the power relationship back into proper balance. So I don't mention in the book forgiveness until we have talked about reparations. And when I do talk about forgiveness, now getting to your point that you asked about, um, I'm talking about it in in the terms, not of something that we do for the sake of the colonizer or for the sake of the one who has oppressed to let them go, to to let them off the quote hook, right? That's not, it's not for that. In fact, I was, my first time I kind of had this revelation was when I was in South Africa and I was um, uh, walking, um, well, actually, I was I was sitting and I was talking with some friends. Um, I had I'd done some walking with another friend who grew up in Kailicha, um one of the most dangerous and um, impoverished um, um, shanty towns, mm-hmm. um, uh, townships for black people in the Cape Town area. And you know he said without without missing a beat that restitution is what would be necessary in order to make things right. And then I was talking with a white friend of mine over scones, no joke, and 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 she was, you know, just talking about how grateful she was for the forgiveness that was offered by the black South Africans. But it struck me that that forgiveness was really not for her sake, and yet she had re- received it as if it was for her sake, mm-hmm. and not just her, but almost all the white South Africans received the forgiveness offered by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and and the nation. Um, as letting them off the hook, right? Like it's for their sake. It was not. Yes. It was for the sake of those who had been tied economically, socially, politically, spiritually to their oppressor for a century or more, actually centuries at that point. And so they had a relationship um, with this oppressor that felt like it couldn't be broken. And anything that they got had to be because the oppressor said they would do it, right? Um, and and so they had to beg their oppressor to do right, to give them what was their due. So to forgive, forgiveness is a resilience strategy because to forgive is to cut the tie between the oppressor and the oppressed. It is to say to the oppressor, you can go now. I don't need you anymore. Now go. And then you turn to God who has cattle on a thousand hills and moves the course of rivers and moves mountains. And you say to God, the one who is our Abba Father, the one who is who delights to give God's children good things and meet our needs you say to god okay god now you ante up you see people who have oppressed nations that have oppressed don't always have actually literally have what is necessary for our healing and restoration so for the things that cannot be repaired for the things that can never be restored for our own sake we must release them from the the mandate to give back what they took because they just don't have it anymore but then we turn to god and we say to god you do it you fill the need and guess what god is infinite god does move mountains and sometimes mountains move through our politics And sometimes mountains move through our business, and sometimes mountains move through the cooperation of neighbors. But mountains do move. Mm. Amen.
2: My entire body is on fire right now. You were speaking, and I was like, oh my goodness. Holy Spirit. I was saying this to Jonathan before we interviewed. I so believe you're such a prophetic, a profound prophetic voice in this moment. And Mm even as you speak about forgiveness and connectedness, and I can say like, even in my own journey, it hasn't, I haven't understood it in that way as a space for agency and autonomy. And like, Hey, like now go, like you have no power over me. That's right. That's exactly what it is. And I think even as a culture, unfortunately it feels like some people are just waking up to all of this. And that's a whole other conversation but there's so much anger that comes up in my own spirit with that and like the re-traumatizing that happens. Mm-hmm. And often it's like, well, you're just, you're living in anger. You stop living in anger and you need to just forgive and move on and forget. Mm-hmm. But the way you speak about it and just the power and authority that it holds, I think like you just explained the gospel.
0: That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And that's the reality, right? Is that as Christians, we actually have everything we need mm. to be able to move healing throughout the world. The the problem is is that I don't think we believe the gospel. I don't think we actually believe the good news. I don't think we actually believe that Jesus is the king.
1: Mm.
0: I think that I think that people of European descent have actually warred against God for supremacy. And that's the reason we're here. That if you actually bowed to Brown Jesus, the reality, the truth of who Jesus was, that you would bow to the one who said, I've come to free the oppressed from white supremacist Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the context that he's speaking in. I've come to set the political prisoners free. Yeah. That's the
2: context. The way you spoke about the Lord's prayer, mm-hmm. the political call that, that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that we, we don't really appreciate because our hermeneutics are so horrible in the church right now. They're so bad. Yes. People literally in Bible studies will open up the Bible and like treat it like a Ouija board and just put their finger down and go, this is the word from the Lord for me today. Right? Like that's, that is not the word of the lord for you today and you don't even know what you're looking at because you haven't studied it you haven't gone into it and it's possible it's possible for you to understand it but you're lazy and so you don't get it um and and that's the issue that's the problem so what what would it look like then for us to actually take the lord's prayer um i was blown away when i read about this and and also heard um obri Hendricks speak on this at a at a conference in 2009 2008 rather um, the conference was called "The Gospel um, Envision: The Gospel Politics in the Future," and um, and Aubrey Hendricks spoke on, and part of his his speech was on the Lord's Prayer. And what he said was that you know Jesus lived in the context of a, literally a white supremacist Roman Empire. They they were they were explicitly white supremacist, in fact. And you'll hear people. I've heard scholars say, "Oh no, they didn't, they didn't believe in you know." I mean, they were they were very very egalitarian. In other words, they were very diverse and. Sorry, that they subjected people like they literally threw salt on people's land, so that they couldn't grow anything anymore, and and that's how they and then and and before that they killed people, to make them subject to them. That's the Roman Empire, and their goal was to make the world Rome, right? Just like England's goal was to make the world England, literally. These, these all come, they're all from the same lineage of thought. And so, um, so the Roman empire believed as Aristotle, the Greek philosopher said that, that if, if a, if a people group has, has been conquered, it has shown itself that it was created to be enslaved. Right. So, Um, And and when they looked at another or or considered what would be a human being, what they believed was a human being was somebody like them. And it wasn't, it didn't include women. It was white men, basically, who can walk and stand on two, two feet. So in other words, disabled people were not fully human. Women were not fully human. And certainly not brown people from other parts of the world were not seen as fully human to them. So that meant Jesus was not seen as fully human to them. So, you know, that's the context within which Jesus says, pray this way, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us or forgive us our trespasses, depending on which gospel you're reading, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Again, depending on which one you're reading for, uh, for thine is the power and the glory, um, for forever. Amen. Right. So, so he says, pray this way, but what we don't do, cause we don't do the work. We don't understand that Caesar, Caesar said, call me, Papa, call me father. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Pray to Papa God in heaven, our our father in heaven, not our Papa here in Rome. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed isn't just like some cool English word. It means the highest, the highest name is God's name. And by the way, this is a, this is actually a direct reflection of Genesis one. He's hearkening back to Genesis one here, because in Genesis one, the name for God is the supreme God um over the god of their captors which depending on who you're reading either you think it's Egypt or or Babylon but basically their captors right so the supreme god jesus hearkens back to this other time when they were enslaved and says um god our god is highest not caesar do bring bring basically bring heaven to earth and um, do on earth as you would have it done in in heaven. In other words, you have your will, God, not Caesar's will, and your will be done. That's that's your will, God. And then, um, give us this day our daily bread. You realize that Caesar had this thing called the daily bread. It was literally like the centurions, Roman army, going around in carts and throwing bread out to the crowd. That was called the daily bread. Why? Because they had salted the land so they couldn't grow anything on it. So they were dependent um, on Rome for even daily bread. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Forget your bread. God, you give us our daily bread, right? So he's telling the people to turn their backs on Rome because they don't need Rome. God is supreme, God is the provider of daily bread. And then in the middle of that, he says, and forgive our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. Who's trespassed? Rome. Rome has trespassed. So Jesus spoke in a context, a geopolitical context. So his words had meaning to the people who were the original hearers. As they stood also in that geopolitical context, and they would have understood what he was saying. It's we who don't do the work mm-hmm. who 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 reduce the Lord's Prayer to a memory verse that we teach in Sunday school.
1: Absolutely. It's a it's a freedom manifesto for an oppressed people.
0: Yes. And I, I yes. mean
1: watching people lose their minds over over debt forgiveness and any number of other things in this moment you know black and-
0: mermaid
2: black <laughs> mermaid a little mermaid oh, being
0: black
1: oh my gosh you know and i'm reading yeah. jesus say if a roman centurion demands you carry his pack for 1 mile carry mm-hmm. it for 2 mm-hmm. you know re- resist that oppression with your own dignity
0: with your own agency and also Get this to carry it for two would have been to break the law. So what he was saying was, you know, basically shame him. Right. Shame, shame him. Wow. He makes you carry it for one. Okay. I'm gonna carry it for two. I'm gonna get you in trouble. <laughs> That's so good. Wow. I'm gonna get you in trouble. He's not saying, you know, grin and take it. No. He's saying resist dehumanization. Yes because at the core of the gospel is the image of God and the protection and the 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 coming the coming of the king of the kingdom of God to reclaim the health of the image of God on Earth
1: yes amen okay so what does this look like in your mind's eye for the church and and especially the church in America and I'll, I'll to that question I'll add, I've I've never lived in America but I've lived in five other nations and the the hegemony that the religious hegemony that America exports to the rest of the world the city on a hill language this myth of a christian nation
0: mm-hmm.
1: all of this stuff uh impacts us as canadians and as kiwis mm-hmm. and as europeans it, it is obviously these kinds of unvirtuous cycles mm-hmm. what what does it mean for this country that has this this founding idea of being some Christian nation—that you rightly point out—has never once been the case. What, obviously, the concept is flawed. But even just mm-hmm. if you were to entertain it for the moment, mm-hmm. this was never true.
0: No.
1: What? What? Mm-hmm. What do you see in your in your most hope filled visions for the church in in this land?
0: Well, I see. I see truth seeking. I see truth listening. I see them now turning around and telling the truth that they've heard Mm. from those who have been subject, not only to crowns and legislatures that have legislated human hierarchy, but also to the church, which spearheaded it Mm. and laid the the philosophical, religious, and then even the legal foundations for that human hierarchy to take root in law around the world. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that when we do that truth-seeking that's going to be really important is for the truth, for the church to own the truth that it is within the church that Aristotle's understanding of subject and ruler got embedded into our theology. It was Pope Nicholas V and his Romanist pontifex which declared that any explorer could go and if they found an unchristian or uncivilized nation, they could claim that land for the throne and enslave its people. What was his justification for that? He was looking at Genesis 1, and he was reading it through the eyes, through the lens of Aristotle, not through the lens of brown Jesus, right? So he was reading Genesis 1 and saying, Um, it is those who are made in the image of God who were called to exercise dominion on earth. And he he then said, well, those who made in the image of God are people like me. Those made in the image of God are, quote, civilized, even though, look, we can argue about who was civilized first. I mean, throughout the continent of Africa, there were aqueducts and there were trade routes and there were cathedrals even, literally cathedrals before there was the first cathedral in Europe, before there was the first city in Europe. Um, so you know you want to talk about civilization? We can go there, but but he had he became God in his own imagination, determining who who is created to exercise dominion. Where the Scripture itself is clear, all humanity. If you're human, you were created to exercise stewardship of the world, agency in the world, make decisions that impact the world. So that's the truth that must be embraced by the church: is that it's We were central to the break as we have experienced it over the last 500 years since the age of, quote, discovery, which was actually the age of conquest. Yes. And so that age of conquest was given the the theological and religious eschatological cover Mm -hmm. of religion, Christian religion, and we have to own that. We also have to own the reality that within the very first beginnings of the colonial era um, in Maryland and then throughout the colonies in the United States, um, it was the church that became the holders of the keys of indenture and enslavement. Um, It's just this incredible moment that happens um, in the midst of, of Maryland, the colony of Maryland working out its first race laws. Where they determined they're the second ones to create race laws. Virginia was the first. And Virginia was trying to solve the problem of these mixed-race children that were being born to white men who were raping their enslaved black women. And then these mixed-race children saying, Um, you know, you, my dad, you are a British citizen, and according to British law, We can't be, I mean, I can't be enslaved because my dad is a British citizen and citizenship comes through the line of the dad. So in Virginia, they just shifted where citizenship came from. Now it would come through the line of the mother. And then they added in perpetuity and that's what created race-based slavery in America. That words, the words in perpetuity, forever through the mother. So if your mother's 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 mother was enslaved, therefore you are not a citizen. Therefore you can be enslaved. Now in Maryland, they were solving a slightly different problem um but same si- same thing but different side of the coin white women were coming into the colony saying i i'm falling in love with an enslaved black man and this is a white woman usually who's an indentured servant irish or scotch um or scottish and um and they were marrying and having children with enslaved african men and of course this bruised the egos of maryland's legislature um, and it also confused their caste system because they had 600 mixed race children just in the colonial era alone, just in Maryland and Delaware alone, um, uh, that they had to figure out what is their status? What is their caste? In other words, are they going to be enslaved? Are they going to be indentured? Are they going to be free? So the the legislature answered that problem by saying, if any white woman marries and has children with an enslaved African man, she herself will become enslaved to her husband's master and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity again, who benefits from this the planters um the 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 legislature actually who was the planter class benefits from this by getting free labor forever um and creating a permanent bottom line right so permanent permanent um yeah. uh, profit but what they realized and they didn't expect this and this is a Catholic colony, um, they didn't expect that throughout the colony, planters would actually start to force their indentured white suit white um, servants indentured servants to marry and have children with enslaved african men thus breaking the law thus now the penalty of which being that they would be able to be enslaved by that same master that forced them to marry and that's what was happening so white women were now being enslaved And their children were being enslaved in perpetuity and they were forcing it to happen. So these planters came back, or rather the the legislative class came back, you know, years later and said, we have to, you know, we didn't expect that to happen. They clutched their pearls. And they say, from henceforth, the ones who will now have the keys that establish who will be indentured and who will be enslaved, it's going to be taken out of the hands of the planters and put into the hands of the church. So now the church becomes the keepers of freedom, the keepers of enslavement, the, the the arbiters, really the central auction block of the colony of Maryland and then eventually Virginia and then North Carolina South Carolina Delaware it, it goes throughout the southern colonies. And so the church not only is complicit through its silence but now it's actually a manager of the Oppression of the image of God on earth. So these are the truths that we as the church have to reckon with and um, repair and offer reparation in -hmm. the same way that universities are doing now when they realize that that they have a university because of slave labor. Mm -hmm. And now they're beginning to make reparation for the families that were enslaved in order for them to be, well, the church has to do the same thing around the world in order for things to be made right again, or for the first time.
1: Mm. Yeah, right. Right. For the, for things to be made the way they should have always been, and that's right. never were.
2: That's right.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: I thought it was so profound when you talked about how you couldn't think of an example where a, like white men showed up into a community or a space and didn't think to themselves how can i benefit from this
0: um you know let me i'll i'll just to clarify it's not benefit it's who should be ruling here
2: yes yes mm-hmm. and they and the assumption is they should now, always it's it, this is an area that, like when even when you talked about you civilization and aqueducts and in, in like parts of africa right so it's just interesting when you you spoke about intergenerational trauma, how things continue to get passed down. So then as a woman of Indian descent, we're all talking about, you know, the passing of the queen in recent days. And so that brings up emotions in my own body about how I feel about that and Mm. what was stolen from India, whether it was like financially or um, socially or just like intellect and all, like just like um, all of that. That's right. And yet the conversations that I have with so many family and friends who are from that part of the world, it's like, well, you know, If the British never came to India, we would never have railroads. If the British never came to India, we would never have like this and this and this. And somehow there's been this trauma of you are still not civilized. For you to have civilization, you need the white men to show up and build you a railroad system. It's a
0: failure of imagination.
2: Yes. Oh, it's so good. It's a failure
0: of imagination. And it is actually indicative. I mean, it really reveals how deeply. Folks have literally swallowed the lie whole cloth. Like they've just, they believe it. They've actually, they're eating and going, this tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> now that's not true. It's not true that they wouldn't have railroads. Maybe they'd have something else. Maybe they wouldn't need railroads. Maybe they would have something else. Um, you know, I mean, really think about, think about, just think about the continent of Africa. Before Europeans hit the continent of Africa, there was, there were trade routes. People traveled hundreds and thousands of miles and those trade routes went deep into the heart of Africa down into sub-saharan Africa and all the way up through Europe that these trade routes existed they didn't need Europe to do that they just they did it because we got it like that yes. the pyramids were not a european creation and europeans want to say martians did it because they don't want to believe that people other than them actually have brains (laughs) that God gave us that can work. Like we have brains too. The very first libraries in the entire world were on the continent of Africa and the nation of Mali in Timbuktu. Um, The very first university in the entire world was on the continent that we now call Africa. Um or the Middle East, which the Middle East actually considers itself Africa. Hello. um that's that even the division is a European worldview that's imposed on the people and the rest of the world. So you know, we could do this. we don't need we didn't need Europe to do this and we had it before them. We already did it. And in fact, we already had Jesus. Yes, We already had Jesus. I mean, do you realize the kingdom of Congo, Mm -hmm. as in in central Africa, in the heart of Africa, they had a pope? Like they had, or I guess you could say, um, maybe not a pope, but they had a bishop. Like they had Christianity. They had, in fact, the first evangelist in the scripture is the Samaritan woman, not a European. She's a brown woman and not even Hebrew. She's mixed race. And then one of the first acts of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to earth in in Acts, in the book of Acts, one of the first, actually the first act of the Holy Spirit, is to decolonize the language of the Roman Empire, which had imposed Greek as the only acceptable and legal trade language, the language everybody had to speak to each other. But so in Acts 2, like the minute that the Holy Spirit comes, what does the Spirit do? Boom! People start speaking their indigenous languages. And not only theirs, the the indigenous languages of the others in the room. So now everybody understands everybody without the domination of one language. What? So we have a lack of imagination. If you think we need European railroads to do what, you know, to give us good stuff, then you don't, you must not believe in God who could actually not impose one language to make everybody understand, but but, but could give everyone the ability, the supernatural ability to speak each other's indigenous languages and understand them. You don't have an imagination that is worthy of the King. The King of God. If you think we need subjugation and domination in order to succeed, no, we do not. Preach. Come. the The King of the 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 health of any kingdom is symbolized in the health of the images of the king, or or monarch in that kingdom. The health of the kingdom can be displayed or shown in the health of the images. And so, and the people who are reading Genesis 1 would have totally understood this. So when they said, when they said, Let us make humankind in our image and let them multiply and fill the earth, what is that doing? It is saying to the earth, God is the king of the earth. This is God's kingdom. The whole realm is God's kingdom. But when we govern in ways that dominate the image of God, to prohibit and limit capacity to exercise agency in the world that cover over the call of God in certain people groups or in most people groups actually to be self-determining um, and to decide for themselves where they will live and how much their labor is worth and where that thread will go in this garment and this, for this textile. When we outlaw the spinning of textiles in India, or the touching of the sea to gather salt that God provided to the people. When we outlaw um, or when we when we strip people of their families, of their children in Canada and in, in Australia, indigenous families, when we do that, we limit and crush the capacity of the image of God to flourish, to exercise agency. And guess what? Guess what the ancients would have understood about that? They would have understood that as the image of the king is crushed, then you could better know there is war against that kingdom happening Mm. in the land. Yes. So, what if when we govern in ways that crush the image of God, we are actually declaring war on God? Absolutely. So, truth telling Mm -hmm. and reparation and restitution, and the healing is all necessary. These are just simply prescriptions for health in the kingdom of God. It is simply confession, and repentance, and forgiveness. It's all we're talking about here. But instead of talking about it on an individual level, we're talking about it globally. For the ways we've treated each other, each other's people groups.
1: Yeah. Lisa, this is incredible. And you can come back and preach the gospel to us anytime you like.
2: (laughs) Lisa, can we ask you to pray for us? Yeah. You had an incredible line in your book where you were praying over an individual who had been unjustly and unrightly imprisoned in isolation for many, many years. And your image of praying over him was you prayed the devil back to hell. And I, as I think that even just Jonathan and myself right now and so many of our listeners, I think when you talk about we have waged war against the image of, against the images of God and against God, there are so many ways in which we need to pray the devil back to hell. Yeah. But we are sitting here as a European, like a man who is white. And is you know, as Jonathan shared in the beginning, he's owning his own pain in the story as you're sitting here. And maybe this is re-traumatizing to your own story. I think in so many ways, we all can sit in both sides. Anyways, can you pray for us before we leave, please?
0: Yes. And let me just say this, that this work, this work of repair is not only for the sake of the oppressed. It is for the sake of those who have benefited from and actually spearheaded the oppression of others, of the image of God on earth. Lies, lies dehumanize and they dehumanize all, not only those who are on the tip of the spear, but the one who throws the spear is also dehumanized.
1: Can I just, yes. Can I just say so much of my work with my therapist has been around emotional neglect. And when you drew this line Mm -hmm. of what, what's what it's cost the oppressor in their own access to their emotions and what they had to do to continue doing this for the sake of their wealth and all of the ways they justified it. Mm -hmm. So many lights were going off for me in Mm -hmm. terms of the legacy of European stoicism Mm -hmm. and how much that's damaged our side. And, And amen to what you just said in terms of how it destroys us to destroy others.
0: Well, that's, I mean, isn't that, I'm glad that you connected with that. And I think that that's, that's the problem is that people of European descent have lost so much in this bargain, gained power, gained the ability to control um, others and, and, and at least the, the illusion of control of the world. But in the doing, they have themselves become disconnected from their own land and story and peoples because they've had to take on this new identity that's completely disconnected from anything in reality called whiteness. And whiteness yeah. is only was only created to determine one thing, who is created to rule. That's it. That's the entirety of the purpose of this thing called white, whiteness. And so when in our current um, day, our current uh, era, when we look at, especially here in America, we look at the next 25 years as being the time where there's going to be a shift it's actually 23 years now where there's going to be a shift and no longer will there be any one ethnic group that is a majority in america but rather people of european descent will be in the decided minority in the united states mm-hmm. of america um that is freaking white folk out because it will no longer be the case that they should have assumed dominion power white Dominion white power and I think that that's what's causing now um, this uprising of around the world of of like a a movement to recolonize really a movement of a white we call it in America white Christian nationalism it's white nationalism in Hungary or you know basically white nationalism all over the country all over the world it's because we see the shift and um, folks of European descent have not yet done the work to reconnect themselves to the reality of their stories and their lineages and their lands as in their indigenous lands so their identity is right now completely 100% wrapped up in their their capacity to wield power yeah so i think that that people of european descent have work to do in this as well and that their healing their re maybe exchanging of a heart of stone for a heart of flesh is going to look like doing their own family history and finding out how did my family get here to this land wherever we are? And did they, were they a part of um, the decision making that oppressed other peoples? Were they, did they get here after that? And did they benefit from it? Or were they among the few that fought it? You need to know this. You need to know it. So that you can stand in it and be grounded, be connected. And once you're connected to yourself and your own story, you'll be much more prepared to then reconnect to everyone else and to the earth again um, and to God again. Mm -hmm. So I will pray um, and I will pray that the devil is prayed back to hell. The devil is shoved back to hell by all of our work of truth seeking and truth listening and truth-telling, and reparation, and forgiveness. Amen.
1: Amen. Friends, that was Lisa Sharon Harper. You need to go to her website, lisasharonharper.com. You need to learn more about her work. You need to follow her on social media. And you need to go and get... uh, Her two books are are actually fantastic. The Very Good Gospel is her earlier book. And then this brand new book that we're talking about is Fortune. Uh, And it's called Fortune because it traces, in really fascinating detail, back to her ancestor named Fortune. We didn't get into this a ton, but Lisa is descended from these very first group of Angolan captives who were brought to what's today called the United States. And so the history of her family is intimately interwoven with the story of race in America. So that's the the format that the book takes. It's intense, it's heavy, but it's very informative and very powerful, full of the kind of hope and power and truth-telling that you just heard. So make sure to hit the show notes and go and grab a copy of Lisa Sharon Harper's book. I want to say thank you to Elliot and Sarah and Kelly and Jason, who are my latest patrons. Friends, if you enjoy this show, if you like the work that we're doing here, would you consider becoming a supporter? You can support for as little as $3 a month, more if you would like to. You can become a supporter at patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. All the support really helps me and my family and keeps this work going. Friends, this is the final episode for 2022. I'm going to be taking a little social media break and we will be back after christmas we've got more thrilling episodes and discussions and interviews to share with you all honestly i feel like we're going from strength to strength and the conversations that i have recorded and in the can waiting to be released are just so wonderful so thank you so much for being here for being a listener for sharing these episodes thanks for being on the journey with us grace and peace to you. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. Happy New Year. We will see you in 2023.